You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. When I think of great voices, I think of Bishop Sheen. And it was his voice that touched the hearts of millions of souls through his radio addresses and his television programs. And we'd like to share a few of those reflections with you today. So I would invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And today we're going to put on our thinking caps with Bishop Sheen. And he's going to give um, a lesson simply entitled, Liberal or Reactionary? And uh, a lot of times uh, we kind of wonder what side everyone's on, but uh, he knew the pulse of the nation. And so uh, this reflection will truly touch your heart. And uh, he will also spend some time uh, giving us an address in the second part of our program, uh, simply asking the question, what has happened to our spiritual life? And I think we can ask ourselves that question too. What has happened to our spiritual life? So uh, looking forward to uh, listening to Archbishop Sheen on that topic. So again, just uh, sit back and relax and uh, enjoy uh, these uh, powerful meditations that touched the hearts of millions years ago and will touch us here today. Please enjoy. Friends, Uh, This week we received a letter from a father who had received a report from school about his son. The father apparently was a doctor. The boy had good notes and everything except penmanship. The father said to him, You must learn to write. If you don't, you'll grow up to be a doctor like me. And the little boy said, Or maybe like Bishop Sheen, he can't write either. We are, I discover, starting a new fashion and style. We have received a picture of a little boy in Minneapolis, which you will now see. Uh, This little boy, you see, is dressed just exactly as I am, even down to the yarmulke. I think that possibly Hopalong Cast would be better to watch out for his loyals. These yarmulkes will be substituted for ten-gallon hats. And apropos of styles, I heard of a man the other day who went in and bought a hat from Madame Nicole. And it was, of course, the very latest style. And he dashed out of the shop madly and down the avenue. And someone said to him, why all the hurry? He said, I want to hurry home. I'm afraid to get out of style. <laughs> which, is, which is an introduction for a style in ideas. It's all right to have style in clothes. But today there's a certain amount of snobbery about 
time, and people feel that any idea that is modern is necessarily the best. The assumption is that inasmuch as there is progress in the world that is inevitable and necessary, then it follows that any idea which we have today is much better than the idea of last year or ten years ago. Now, this snobbery of time as regards an idea is not necessarily justified. Time does not make us better. Time could conceivably make us much worse. For example, a white fence does not get whiter with time, it gets blacker. And then, too, very often what people call modern is nothing but an old error with a new label. Whenever you have an idea that you are absolutely sure is original, and no one ever thought of it before, go back and see how the Greeks put it. They had it, too. Then, too, this idea that everything that is modern enough today is the very best is based upon the idea that if we move with the times, we are wise. It's well to remember that dead bodies float down streams. It is only live bodies that resist the current. And particularly... We find this snobbery of time in the present tendency to divide everyone into what is called a liberal or a reactionary. So that we all are asked whether we belong to the left or whether we belong to the right. Now, it is not necessary, really, to belong to either one, because... These are extremes. Let me prove it to you. In everything that changes, there must always be something that is changeless. For example, you meet someone whom you haven't seen in 20 years, and you say, my, how you've changed. How fat you got. <laughs> well, now, it may be true that this person is a victim of circumference, but how would you know that? <laughs> How would you know there was a change unless there had been something changeless in the person? Or, for example, one woman meets another and she says, I like you much better as a blonde than as a brunette. <laughs> and then she invariably also adds, and also those fine black roots. <laughs> so there must always be change with the changeless. Now, as you see, the liberal takes the change and the reactionary emphasizes the changeless. Here are some examples of it. A liberal may be described, or rather a reactionary may be described, as a man with two feet, a pair of shoes, but he absolutely refuses to walk. A liberal has been very well described as one who has both feet firmly planted in midair. <laughs> a reactionary has a boy. The boy wears a green hat at the age of two. And the reactionary says, Johnny, you wear a green hat now, you'll wear it at 12, you'll wear it at 20, you'll wear it all your life. The liberal said, let's give Johnny a new head. 
Not a new hat, a new head. A reactionary is a flat tire on the wheels of progress. A liberal is the automobile without a steering gear. He doesn't know where he's going, but he's certainly on his way. The liberal emphasizes the pendulum of the clock without the clock, and the reactionary, the clock without the pendulum. See, both are creations of time related to it. Now, there also is a law about liberals and reactionaries, and the law is this. Every liberal is a reactionary. He's in reaction to the last form of liberalism. That isn't too difficult to understand. For example, a woman buys a new gown. It's the dernier cri, and, and it's even described as tearing and shocking. She goes to a ball. There's another ball the following week. Would she wear that same gown? She would die first. <laughs> already in reaction to the last form of liberalism. Take, for example, our modern woman. What is the modern woman? From the liberal point of view, well, she's someone who drinks cocktails, smokes cigarettes, and wears red fingernails. As Dorothy Parker says, she looks as if she just gored an ox. <laughs> now, she is the liberal in womanhood, but she's in reaction to the last form of liberalism, which was the Victorian woman with a bustle and a high collar and someone who kept in a notebook quotations from Lord Byron and loved the waltzes of Strauss. And that woman was in reaction to another form of liberalism, which was the Puritan who thought that a waltz was a kind of an orgy. And it's true also in politics. The old liberal of the 19th century, the liberal that was made by Adam Smith and James Stuart Mill, believed that there should be economic production without state control. The modern liberal is in reaction to the last form of liberalism, and the modern liberal believes there should be economic production with state control, even with a form of socialism. And thus, you see, they are always juggling ideas from one end to the other, and everything is decided on the basis of time instead of on the basis of reason. And we decide arguments with slogans, carrying the burden of those who are too lazy to think for themselves, or emotions. People justify a position by saying, well, I feel it in here. What is needed, really, in our modern world that is so dedicated to time and is so forgotten reason and discussion and controversy and argument and intelligence, we need someone who will bring to the world, first of all, the use of reason. In other words, induce us once more to think. Secondly, our ideal will be one who in discussion and in presentation of thought will always give and know both sides of the question, and not one side only. And thirdly, he will always argue from the other person's 
position or premise. These are some of the ideals of intelligence to restore sanity to the world. And who can ever bring them back? I think I know someone who can. I'll tell you a bit about his life. When he was born, his father went out and told the neighbors, well, the little calf has come. Then he went to school. He was rather a big fellow, big arms, big legs, neck, body. Very timid. The fellow students used to call him an ox. The dumb ox. One day, his professor became angry at the students for calling this big boy a dumb ox. And this professor said, someday the bellowings of that ox will be heard around the world. He used reason so very cleverly that naturally he was led to God. And his parents and relatives tried to deflect him a bit from that position. They were rather modern. They thought the way to do it was to interest him in sex. So they introduced a woman into his room one day when he was studying. And he reached over to the fireplace and he picked up a blazing poker and he chased her out of the room and then he traced upon the door of his room a blazing cross and then sat down and thought. And how he thought. When was he born? 1224. His name? Thomas Aquinas. And though he lived to be about only 50, he wrote these 34 volumes. They're all in Latin. Some of them have been done into English. One of the greatest masterpieces of the human mind. I had to go through all of these when I was in the university in Louvain. As a matter of fact, we had to read every line of them. It took a whole year to do it, too. My angel brought these books out, incidentally. He's very humble. He doesn't mind carrying books out. <laughs> I'm going to show you how he thought and how he reasoned. First of all, I said he used reason. He said you cannot begin with faith. There must be a reason for faith. And before you accept anything, there must be a motive for that belief. This was rather astounding to people who thought that you began religion, particularly supernatural religion, with faith without reason. Then he took up, for example, such a question as the existence of God. And he said, is the existence of God self-evident? And he said, no. 
It is not self-evident. You have to use your reason to prove it. And he began using his reason. And his first argument for the existence of God that he gave was the fact of evolution. He says there's evolution in the world. It was cosmic. He embraced everything, not only biological evolution, but even mental evolution in the sense of the evolution of thought within the human mind itself. So he gave reasons for everything. And in addition to that, he always gave both sides of a position. How rare that is. Let me give you an example of the structure of this work. Here, for example, is his question. Does God exist? I'm going to bring it up here to the camera. Is this the camera that can take care of it? He asked if God exists. Now he begins always by giving the opposite position, and honestly and fairly. And his first argument is, no, God does not exist. He said if God exists, he had to be perfect. If he's perfect, he's perfect goodness. If he's perfect goodness, there can be no evil in the world. But there is evil in the world, therefore God does not exist. Then he gives the second position. You do not need God. Nature explains everything. And after he has given the objection, the other man's point of view, then he gives his own position and answers the objections. And that is the case throughout his entire work. You cannot pick up, for example, a volume of Karl Marx and find any honest presentation for the case of private property or for Christianity or for the existence of God. You cannot pick up Lenin and find a presentation of another position than that of communism. But here positions are presented so strongly and honestly and in the words of their own protagonist, let me tell you a story about Voltaire. You remember Voltaire was that scoffer who boasted that it took 12 men to found the infamy of Christianity. But he said, I will destroy it alone. Voltaire went to a convent, rather a monastery, a Benedictine monastery. He lived there about six months. The news went around France. Voltaire is getting the gift of faith. Oh, no, he was not. You know what he was doing during those six months? He was copying out all the objections that there are in these books. And he never read the answers. That's Voltaire. That's why I like the tradition in which I've been educated. We've always been told the other man's point of view, and we're told to think it out. Now, for example, the question of Freud. Here's an article in which St. Thomas asks whether the happiness of man consists in sex. There it is. He gives five reasons why it does, and they're much better than Freud gives. (laughs) 
And he answers them, too. <laughs> and then not only does he use his reason, not only does he give both sides, but he also maintains that you must argue from the other man's point of view and never from your own. In other words, when you're arguing with an atheist, you must never say, well, you're a dirty atheist, you do not believe in God. When you're arguing with a communist, it does no good to say you're a materialist. Thomas Aquinas says, always understand his point of view and start with it. Here is a beautiful example of how he did it. One of his friends, Raymond of Pinafort, been a missionary among the, the Muslims. And he wasn't able to do very much with the Muslims. So Raymond of Pinafort came back and said to Thomas, will you write me a book? So Thomas wrote, Contra Gentiles. And this is what he says. He said, when you're arguing with the Muslims, do not quote the Bible. They have their own Bible, which is the Quran." When you're arguing with a Jew, it's all right to use the Old Testament. Arguing Christianity, use the New Testament. But when you argue with Muslims, do not first bring them the Bible, first bring them reason. Think. This is common to both the Muslim and the Christian. This was his approach. And if we could only sell the country on the necessity of honest thinking, that is why we started this program, incidentally, to give the American people reasons for a position, not just to state a position. No, the trouble with our world today is there's entirely too much authoritarianism in it. First of all, there's the authoritarianism of, of the totalitarian systems which impose an idea by force. And then there's this other authoritarianism of democratic countries in which people believe something without having any reasons given. And they even do not want reasons. And there are the skeptics who say, oh no, I cannot think. I do not know whether there is a God or not. Let's make them think. This reason that has been given to us is a reflection of the divine word. And it was not meant to rust in us unused. It is the noblest faculty that we possess. These skeptics have a very false humidity. And they tell us they cannot know and they cannot think out these problems. Why, if their position became universal, the world would die of skeptic poison. So we appeal to abandon prejudice, to summon up reason, which is the common bond of all men under God. We have not used it sufficiently. There's been a softening of our brains and here we appeal for a hardening of brains. The development of this great tradition called thinkage. And perhaps if we have a hardening of brains, then we will have something that is good. We will have a softening of the heart. And God will bless us for it. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Good day, Radio Maria family, and I hope you enjoyed that reflection entitled, 
liberal or reactionary. And I'd ask you now to stay tuned as we hear Bishop Sheen answer the question, what has happened to our spiritual life? God love you. Devout religious, brothers and sisters, brother priests, and all friends in Christ. A retreat master always stands before an audience somewhat as an expert, but I want to assure you that I am no more of an expert in the spiritual life than most of you. I am very much in the position of a survivor of the famous Johnstown Flood. One day, said to St. I think there are many people in heaven who have never heard of the Johnstown Flood. And if you will give me an auditorium, I will tell them about it. Peter gave the celestial auditorium. It was packed. And just as the survivor of the flood got up to speak, Peter pulled at his wing and said, I want you to know that Noah is in the audience. So to all of the Noahs, we are going to talk tonight about what has happened to the spiritual life in the last 20 or 30 years. Very simply, 30 years ago or more, it was sometimes said, I am holier than thou. Now it is said, I am worldlier than thou. In other words, the world has become very important. And that is true. Two great currents have been in movement. One, the church has been going into the world. And the world has been coming into the church. Let us take the first movement. Imagine this was the Cathedral of St. Peter's. Way at the rear is the altar of Our Lady. That is where Benedict XV was crowned, the pontiff of World War I. About as far from the front door as he could get. And Pius XI was crowned under the great dome of St. Peter's. He made an advance of about 75 feet. Pius XII walked down the nave, up some stairs in the wall, and out into a balcony. He literally stepped into the world when he went out into that balcony. And John Twenty-third, down the nave, up the stairs, out into the balcony, and then stretched out those great arms of his almost like the carnal arms of Bernini. He bid the whole world to come to himself. And our gloriously reigning Paul VI down the nave, out the front door, and was crowned in the piazza of St. Peter's. Thus the church in the lifetime of some of us has been moving into the world. And the world has been moving into the church. 
400 years ago when the Council of Trent was held, it could be said that the Council was purely Mediterranean. It was Latin. The Church belonged to the Romantic countries and also to the German countries. Vatican I, 1870, it was still Mediterranean. There was not one single bishop at Vatican Council I from Asia or Africa. In Vatican Council II, 60% of the bishops were from the Americas, from Africa, and from Asia. For the first time in the history of the Church, the dust of all the nations of the earth mingled with the dust of St. Peter's. And in addition to that, there were the observers and visitors from all over the world. So with this double current of going into the world and the world coming into the Church, something was added in the Vatican Council. Chapter 13 was entitled, The Church and the World. Never before did any council ever have a chapter about the world. So, therefore, the world suddenly became important. And you can remember how we were using six or seven years ago the word involvement, how the kingdom of God became identified with a secular order. All this was a reflex of the spiritual order. And it was said that contemplation was a waste of time. About uh, well, last Christmas, I was in prison. I go to prison. I go to prison about every six months. I must tell you that. And uh, I see the prisoners every morning from 8.30 until, in the morning until 10.30 at night. One of them came in to me and said, tell me about prayer. A handsome young man about 25, 26. I said, listen, the very fact that you ask me about prayer means that you know far more about it than I do. Well, he said, I do. I'm a Trappist. Well, I said, how did you get here? Well, he said, you know how everybody began talking about the world after the Vatican Council? I began reading all of the literature. Contemplation is a waste of time. Go where the action is. Get busy. Become involved. So he said, I decided that the contemplation life was a life of wasting, and I left, and six months later I killed a man, and now I'm back in prison to spend the rest of my life in meditation. But that was the spirit of those days. Where was the mistake made? It was not in the church going into the world or the world coming into the church. That was not it. The confusion arose from misunderstanding the word world. In Scripture, that word is used in two senses. First, the world may mean the theater of redemption. And in that sense, the world is good. God saw that it was good. 
the planets and universes that tumbled into space, and the fingers of God were all manifestations of his goodness. Christ is the king of all creation. This whole cosmos will eventually be delivered over into, to him. So the world is good. That was one sense. And hence, uh, in accordance with that sense, Scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son into it. But the world has another sense in Scripture. It means a spirit. It means organization without God. Now, blessed Lord said to his disciples, I have taken you out of the world. Therefore, the world will hate you. If I left you in the world, the world would love you. For the world loves its own. But remember, it hath hated me before you. And again, our blessed Lord said, I pray not for the world. And St. John, love of the world is enmity with God. These are the two senses of the word world. I remember the day they were defined by a Belgian bishop in the course of the Vatican Council. But we never made that distinction. And so we began to almost to turn into a worldly church. That is, some of us did. Others reacted against that turning. The consequence was the church split into two extremes. Now, I'm speaking only of extremes. Remember that. We created psychotics and neurotics. You know the difference, don't you, between a psychotic and a neurotic? A psychotic believes that two and two make five, and a neurotic believes that two and two makes four, and he's mad about it. A psychotic lives in castle in Spain, and uh, or dreams about them, rather. The neurotic lives in them, and the psychiatrist collects the rent. The, the, the psychotic is concerned only with the ideal and not with the real. The neurotic is concerned with the real and not with the ideal. The psychotic wants everything to be frozen. The neurotic wants to step on the accelerator and drive over a precipice. I mean, in a political language, they may, might be divided into conservatives and radicals. And so we had the two extremes battling for a long period of time, each one believing that it was right. When, after all, if we go back again to biblical figures, the true position is that of the rock and the river. Remember when Moses was, had prayed to God in order that the people might be given water in the desert, and he struck the rock, and water came from the rock. 
We find the same figure in the New Testament, too, in the book of Revelation. Now, imagine water coming from a rock. Yes? That's the way Scripture understands stability and fluidity. First of all, in the church there is, there is the rock, something solid, fixed, immutable. Then there's the waters, dynamism, flow, change, development. But some would keep the bed of the river without the flow, and the others would keep the flow of the waters without the bed of the river. And this has been the source of our confusion. Go back to the earthly life of our Lord for a development of this theme. What was the first word of our Lord's public life? What was it? Come and see. Come and see my mind, my will, my love. And what was the last word of our Lord's public life? Go. Go into the world. First we come, then we go. Today we have too many go-goes and not enough come-come. Now, this is the source of the confusion of spirituality and of the church in the last decade or more. And it has had, as regards spirituality, two consequences. One is not so very important, but the other one is. The first consequence was we decided to do a lot of talking. We felt that if we talked, that we were doing something. So, retreats for a while were retreats of discussion. Now, when I receive invitations to give priests retreats, there's always one request made. We do not want a discussion retreat. But that was the that was the type of retreat that came out of this divorce between the psychotics and the neurotics. Now, a discussion has some advantage. First of all, there is a place for it. Let us not deny that. But in a retreat, a discussion has a great value. The retreat master never has to be prepared. He just throws out a few bones and lets the dogs fight for him. And then secondly, discussion is an escape from decision. As long as we're talking, we do not have to do anything about it. Incidentally, we're talking too much in the church today. I used to receive letters from priests saying, can you say something about the incessant talking in the church. Now they're coming from people. Our pastors are busy, are busy away arguing and discussing, neglecting the parish. But a discussion is an escape from decision, a spiritual decision. That's what the woman at the well did. 
Here our blessed Lord meets this woman who comes at noon to draw water from the well. Now, in the east, no woman ever draws water from the well at noon. They come in the morning or at night. Why does she come at noon? Well, we'll find out a little later on. And our blessed Lord asks her for a drink. Whenever our Lord wants to do a favor, he asks for one first. And he engages her in a conversation about grace under the form of water. She was coming to receive water. He offered another kind of refreshment, which was grace. But she didn't understand it. Now our blessed Lord puts his finger on a sore spot, one of decision. He said, go tell your husband. She said, I have no husband. Thou hast answered, well, thou hast no husband. For thou hast five. And he with whom thou livest now is not thy husband. Well, that's touching the sore spots. Now, what would you do if you were at that well? I know what I would do if I were in a similar circumstance. I would change the subject. And I would say, let's have a discussion. And that's precisely what she did. She said, let's discuss something. Where should we worship? Here on this hill as we Samaritans do, or in Jerusalem? Later on, the Lord brought her to a decision. And, of course, that was the reason she was never able to come out in the morning at night, because she was a, a woman who was scorned by the other women, and they would not let her come out morning or evening. So she had to come alone at noon. But the point is, this was an escape from decision, and the Lord forced it upon her. That was one of the first effects of the duel between the psychotics and the neurotics. And the second effect, which is very, very serious. We neglected Christ. Oh, yes, we kept him. He's a silent partner. But he became an outer truth, not an inner truth. An outer truth is something that we master, like the distance of the earth from the sun. An inner truth is something that masters us. And we began to neglect him. His life, personal encounter with him in meditation, the crucifix we began taking down from our hospitals, from our schools. We developed catechetics in which the primacy was given to the community. And not to Christ. Then there came even such incidents as this. See this pectoral cross I wear? It's a crucifix, silver crucifix. One day a Jewish jeweler in New York City, a friend of mine, whom I had known for 20 years, phoned me and he said, would you like to have several hundred crucifixes, silver crucifixes? 
I went down to see him, and he had them all in a paper bag. I said, where did you get them? He said, from sisters. They said they weren't going to wear the crucifix anymore. It alienated them from people. And they asked me how much I would give them. And as he put it, I weighed them out, 30 pieces of silver. He said, what's wrong with your church? I thought the crucifix meant something to you. And I told him what was wrong. And three months later, I received him into the church shortly before he died. And I wear this in reparation. For the nuns throwing off the crucifix. So I say, this has been the great casualty. We keep to Christ speculatively, yes, we do that. We read about him, we study him, we have theological doubts about him here and there. But as one who influences our lives, he became neglected. A case that I know of only too well was a nun got in her car to do some shopping. She was dressed in in uh, civilian clothes. And two men got in the car with her. And they said, drive us to a drive-in theater. We're going to rape you. She said, I'm a nun. I said, you don't look like one. Well, she said, here's my picture. She pulled from out her purse a picture of herself in the habit of a nun. They said, I, we don't know. this. You might have had this taken at a masquerade ball. Well, she said, call up the college where I teach and ask the college if I am not a nun. They did. And the college said, yes, she's a nun. So they took a penknife and they ran it down her back and across her shoulder blades and said, all right, the next man will know that you belong to Christ and let her go. That's the way they thought about it. Now, why is Christ ignored well, first of all, he embarrasses us. He reveals us to ourselves. As he revealed him, Peter to himself, and Peter said, Depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinner. And then another reason, which is rather difficult to understand. Why is it that if a if a young person loves rock, he will want to hear rock music, talk about rock artists. 
But why is it sometimes that those who are supposed to be Christ resent hearing about him? There's a non-Christ spirit. There's sometimes an anti-Christ spirit. I will say no more about it, but let me tell you, when traveling from one end of the country to the other, it becomes manifest. And so the casualty has been Christ. And he alone can make us spiritual. What's the use, for example, of reading books about how to acquire humility? Humility of and by itself, hardly as an abstract thing, does not exist. Benjamin Franklin said, you, you strive to become humble and then you get very proud that you are humble. Then after all, every single virtue has to be located in Christ. We can only love a person. We cannot fall in love with the theorem of geometry. And our blessed Lord said, without me, you can do nothing, nothing. And see how now the young Jesus people have picked him up. These young people have not heard about our blessed Lord from Catholic pulpits. And they've not heard about him from Protestant pulpits either. But somehow or other, the Lord has manifested itself to them. And they concentrate on him. They read his gospels. They try to imitate his life. Their immorality becomes purity. Christ changes them. I wonder if there aren't many shortcuts anyway to the rehabilitation of people which we are missing simply because we've not given the primacy to our blessed Lord. There was a, a minister from Mississippi who had the prejudices of that state but overcame them, took a small pastorate in Montana and then opened up a house called The Way on the Strip in Los Angeles, one of the very corrupt places of this country. And he invited everyone to come into the house, particularly prostitutes, pimps, drug addicts, mafia, anyone at all could come in. The house was open from 10 o'clock in the morning until 4 o'clock in the morning. Arthur Blessed would meet people as they came in. He'd have the scripture in his hand. And he would say to a young man or woman who came in, would you like to have Christ transform your life? Most of the time he would be greeted by a curse. He would try again. One heroin addict told me that when Blessed stopped him, that he cursed him. And Blessed asked him again, and he said, I knelt down with him for a half hour. I thought he'd tear my heart out the way he prayed to Christ for me and my addiction. And he said, I got up from that prayer, and I never touched heroin again. And every single night, he has a toilet service. And in the toilet service, 
there are 2,000 doses of drugs washed away each night. That's what Christ does for these people. Just suppose he came to us now as he is, really. How would we react? St. John Adcock has a poem about a little girl who had a woolen lion. He wondered what would happen if the woolen lion ever became alive. And he speculated, when a blithe infant lapped in careless joy sports with a woolen lion, if the toy should come to life, the child so direly crossed, faced with this actuality, were lost. Leave us our toys, then. Happier we shall stay while they remain but toys. We can play with them and do with them as suits us best. Reality would add to our unrest. We want no living Christ whose truth intense pretends to no belief in our pretense and flashing on all folly and deceit would blast our world to ashes at our feet. We do but ask to see no more of him below than is displayed in the dead playthings our hands have made to lull our fears and comfort us in loss. The plastic Christ upon the plastic cross. If he came alive, it would be frightening. When he's spoken of today, too often he is used. Used with a little text here and there to prove our position. Hence we have books, Jesus and Militancy, Jesus and Sex, Jesus and Revolution, Jesus and Rebellion. That's using him. He's to use us. And in the course of this re retreat, we will show you how he wants to use us. Now you have some dim intimation of what this retreat is to be about. It is not going to deal with anything except Christ. In a Boston home one Saturday evening, the maid came in and announced to a parlor full of guests, for those who do not like baked beans, dinner is over. And so I say to you, for all who do not like Christ, the Savior of the world, this retreat is over. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada.
We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Good day, Radio Maria family. And you heard Bishop Sheen say there that this retreat is over. So, uh, again, our time has come to an end. And so I'd invite you to bring a friend next week and um, let us continue to journey with this good bishop who continues to teach us the faith. And so, everyone, until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.